The Title Block, episode number five, set designer Sean Kerwin. Back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theater designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and today I'm very excited to share with you a conversation I had with Toronto set designer Sean Kerwin. For the first half-hour talk, we'll talk about her early history and training and the beginnings of the Factory Theater and the Blythe Festival. Check out the show notes for links to many of the institutions and people we talk about. And just before we begin, I wanted to send out a little love letter to the Blythe Festival. This year is the 40th anniversary season of this little rep theater in southwestern Ontario. It was instrumental in my early career and to the careers of so many, and it is a magical place. Sean's description of the first time she arrived in Blythe mirrors my own. I was very apprehensive to be stuck in the middle of a small Ontario farming village (laughs) far away from the big city. Blythe, however, is a place like no other. The townsfolk are quirky, and they see the theater folk coming from uh, from a mile off, but they are genuine, and they're very supportive of the storytelling that goes on in Blythe. From its very roots, Blythe was a place to tell stories that were being ignored in the big city, stories that are touching, human, and honest. I would like to encourage you to go to theblithefestival.com. Links are in the show notes and see a show this season. And if you have an opportunity to work there, I would advise not passing it up. But to more pressing matters, here is my talk with an associate artist at Blythe, set designer Sean Kerwin. Sean Kerwin is an award-winning set and costume designer based in Toronto and has designed for more than 40 years across Canada as well as in the U.S. and England. She is currently an associate professor at York University in Toronto. Sean Kerwin, welcome to the title block. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm so glad you've agreed to be interviewed. I think it's terrific. Um, The first thing I want to talk about is sort of your early days in theater. I know you started designing in the 1970s, Mm -hmm. early 70s. Yep. Now, you came out of high school Mm -hmm. in the early 70s. Is that right? Yes. When did you start doing theater? Uh, Well... Uh, depending on how you want to define doing theater. Uh, but I I had no background in theater. I knew nothing about theater. It, what I had not been to see plays. I think I thought it was sort of stupid. I went to a play when I was 16, I think, at the Royal Alex. Um, I, so I was not one of those people that was, you know, kind of headed in that direction. Uh, I was interested in clothing and fashion. I grew up in a household with a Belgian mother who was extremely stylish. And so I grew up with French fashion magazines lying around. And I had a a collection of dolls of different nationalities, little tiny dolls, not the kind you can play with, the kind you look at in a little glass cabinet. And I was quite intrigued by what they wore. And I also... Uh, when I was really young, I always liked doing things with my hands, so I made stuff. I loved putting model kits together without looking at the instructions. So I had a sort of a 
an inherent interest in taking things apart and putting them back together again. And as a teenager, that sort of turned into clothes. I made clothes for myself quite a lot. And uh, I was also intrigued by the idea that these people from different countries wore weird clothes that I didn't understand, but they were nothing like mine. So in high school, I was at North Toronto Collegiate and uh, going into grade 11, it was the first time that I had an option to choose courses. And I had to choose between math and this new thing called theater arts. And I, I chose theater arts, not because I wanted to do theater, but because I didn't want to take math. And it wasn't that I didn't want to take math because I found it boring. I actually loved geometry. It was because the math teacher was smelly and I didn't want to have the math teacher standing next to me looking over my work. You know, it's a pretty simple reason. So uh, a man called Tony Gifford was teaching at Gifford Gifford was teaching at North Toronto at that point, and he was starting a theater arts program. Theater arts meant nothing to me, but I enrolled in it so I wouldn't be taking math. So in grade 11, I got introduced to that. And those kinds of programs didn't really exist in high schools the way they do now. There might have been an amateur dramatic society, uh, but that sort of thing I thought was stupid. Uh, but theater arts, I kind of thought, okay, this might be interesting. And what I actually loved about it was not the part of being in plays. I had to act in a play and I found it off. I hated it. But I love the part that you could read Greek plays and then you could imagine what the Greeks looked like. And that it became a way of learning about history and learning about clothing and learning about other kinds of worlds. So that was my sort of initial entrance in. Uh, then I left North Toronto and went to Seed School, which was the first alternate alternative school in the city of Toronto that got credited. Right. And when was it, when did, was it, had it already been established before you came or was it already I was that one time? of the first, I was in the first year. Right. And what was the... What's the, I'm interested in the seed schools. Well, what was it, what was what was its kind of approach? Because it was not like a well, regular. Well, the first high two years, uh, the first year, you put your name in a hat, and they drew out a hundred names, and my name got pulled out. So I got in because of a fluke. And uh, the thing that was really wonderful to me was that uh, for grade twelve and grade thirteen, which still existed, that because you could have so much control over what you studied and how you did it, you could create your own kind of structure that I did a lot of my straight classes, so to speak, in grade 12 and grade 13. And my grade 12 and 13, I did a lot of them over one year, which would have been my grade 12 year. And uh, what that meant was somewhere in one of those summers between grade 11, grade 12, maybe it was between grade 12 and grade 13, it's grade 12 and grade 13, I think, um, I got involved in a summer theater program for youth through the LIP grants, Lo local initiative project grants under the Trudeau government were very, yep, yeah, they were very popular and a lot of programs, uh, you know, were happening all over the place in different kinds of things. So I got involved in one uh, that was through an Opportunities for Youth program, I think, and it was um, working out of the old Theatre Passmarai on Trinity Square. Uh, and we did plays. We put on plays at the island. We did all kinds of things. And um, I got 
I had no interest in acting in the plays still, but I remember at one point we needed some costumes and I made costumes out of some old black drapes, which I'm sure they didn't want me to cut up. But I remember thinking, ooh, here's fabric. Anyway, because I made these costumes, uh, there was a person working, uh, one of the kind of grown-ups, quote-unquote, was working uh, at that time uh, as, as the kind of production person. And he was going up to this place called Factory Theater that was just getting started on DuPont Street. And he said, do you want to come and do costumes? And I said, sure. And it wasn't to get any pay or anything like that. Um, but because I was at seed school, I also could, my, my schedule had a great deal of flexibility in it. So I could work on these plays while I was still finishing off the rest of my grade 13. And uh, the English teacher at SEED at that time was a wonderful man who is in his 90s now, Gordon Jocelyn, father of Matthew Jocelyn. Anyway, Gordon was my English teacher. So he used to come and see plays I'd work on at the factory. And that's essentially one of the reasons why I could get started because I was in a high school structure that was willing to allow me enough flexibility that I could be doing this kind of work. And did you have a notion that there were actual professionals out there doing this job in theater? Or was this just, were, were there other people around you doing, designing professionally at the same time at the factory and, and elsewhere that you well, went into? Well, at that time, I was, so I was 17. Uh, and I didn't know much about anything. Uh, but I knew the factory was a neat place to hang out. And uh, I was kind of the person who did the costumes and there weren't any other people that I was aware of at the factory, but there were other people. I think the first people that I became aware of in terms of designing sets and costumes were Astrid Jansen, Mary Kerr, people like that who were working at other theaters around. Um, and I, I know at various times I sort of went and volunteered to help them on various projects. It's all a bit of a blur. It was a long time ago. Uh, but mostly, I think I was really uh, focused on the, the work at the factory. That we, I had $25 budgets, and so I would, you know, go out and work uh, trying to find, trying to scrounge things for $25. There was a, bor I had a borrowed sewing machine. I worked in the dressing room, which had no heat. Um, so it was pretty primitive, but my world was pretty small. So it was pretty rich. Um, I think in those early years, uh, one of the biggest influences, I think, was Eric Steiner, who was a director I worked with a lot. And that's where I first met George Walker, because I worked on uh, George's early plays. Um, and so because it was such a hive of activity, and there were so many, like there were, there were people writing plays. So to be around writers who were creating work in front of you, and to be around the rehearsal hall a lot, um, I don't know that I had much sense of, of understanding what theater design was, but I, I certainly had a, a very rich time hanging out in that environment with all those people doing new work. I can imagine. And that's at the sort of beginning point of the kind of resurgence or birth of really modern Canadian theater at the time, right? The factory. What, um, well, I wouldn't say modern Canadian theater, but I would say 
at that point, um, the idea of a commitment to Canadian writers. Because certainly when you look at Donald Davis, when you look at, there's so many people who were, uh, you know, Dora Maver Moore. I mean, Canadian theater was, was a kind of a generation before in terms of getting, getting going, I think. But Canadian playwrights, you know, I, I grew up uh, having no, I could not tell you who a Canadian writer was. I couldn't tell you a Canadian novelist. I couldn't tell you a Canadian a Canadian theater. What was that? I, I remember really consciously thinking, Ken is mad. He says he's just going to do Canadian playwrights. That's crazy. Like, they don't exist. Um, and, you know, I have another very vivid memory of, uh, well, let me back up a bit. Because I had a European mother uh, who was very cultured, uh, who came from Belgium, and uh, I think growing up with her and with my dad, uh, I had this sense that Canadian culture wasn't worth very much. She had come to Canada after the war. She was very sophisticated. I, we were living in Burlington, which was on a, like on a dirt road. It was not built up like it was now, like it is now. And uh, so I had this sense that, that certainly Burlington was a cultural backwater Potentially Canada was a cultural backwater. Uh, so for me, uh, the idea that there was a, a there were Canadian voices that were legitimate and that were worth doing, this was huge to me. So I remember uh, running the Gestetner machine at the Playwrights Co-op on DuPont Street, which was down the street from the factory, where we were making print copies of plays by living Canadian writers. You know, this was, to me, uh, extraordinary. I don't know. No, that makes sense. Now, the, the other question then is, how did you sell? You couldn't have been the only people who thought... I mean, you were you were working in the theater, and you thought that Canadian culture was some bit, a bit of a mystery to you. So, how did you sell that idea to the public? Like, who came to see the show? I have no idea. I mean, you know, I was a high school kid. Like, I was seventeen. I didn't even care if people came to see shows. I just cared about you know the fact that we were putting a play on, and it was so neat. I had this community of people that I worked with. Um, I I kind of remember thinking in that arrogant way you have. Eric Steiner had a great phrase. He used to refer to the arrogance of youth. Well, I mean, I had that in, you know, spades. I just thought, I don't care if people come. They, they're not smart enough to know how interesting we are. And, uh, and because I was the youngest person in the room, uh, I just think that my, my view of what was going on was probably pretty small. I mean, I was still, you know, in high school writing like my history exams and things like that. So I didn't really know what was going on. And I think that, I think that because I was around people who were generally, you know, six to eight years older than I was, who seemed phenomenally sophisticated and grown up. Um, I just kind of deferred to them a lot on being really smart and knowing everything and that I I just was interested in trying to find costumes for $25. Right, of course, of course. So at, um, you graduate high school mm -hmm. and then you need to get some training. Mm -hmm. Were there opportunities in Canada at the time to train in design? There, not that I, well, let me rephrase that. Uh, Eric, who was a huge influence on me, I thought he was the smartest person I'd ever met. Um, 
And because we did a lot of shows together because he was directing them. So we, you know, I had a, I was very influenced by him. He said, you have to go get training. Uh, and he said, you have to apply to Yale. I knew of the National Theatre School, but in all honesty, because I had no knowledge of Canadian theatre beyond Stratford and Factory Pesmerai, Toronto Free when it was getting going, uh, I... I had no reason in my own mind to believe that it was worth going to the National Theatre School because I thought theatre was in England and the U.S. And at that point, at that point, uh, certainly there was such a strong influence of, of Britain. You know, uh, I mean, it was still... Canada had not been kind of on its own for very long, really. I mean, you know, 1967 was a kind of a real pivotal year. But, you know, I'd grown up with the sense that the Queen was really who was running everything. Um, and so my sense was that that's where theatre was as well. And Stratford, I knew Stratford. I didn't really know much else. And Stratford was where you did English plays, you know, where you did Shakespeare. And, and there were a lot of English people there and so I think that my sense of training and where you would go to get that was that you would have to go to another country and where did you go? well I applied to Yale and I and but I always wanted to go to England and in fact George Walker and his girlfriend at the time and I used to talk about going over to England on a steamer which we never actually quite did got we never quite got going but um, I applied to Yale and then I actually, Ken Gass, uh, decided to take some plays to London, England, which seemed like a sort of wonderfully audacious thing to do. And two of the plays that were going over were plays that I had done the costumes for. One was Esker Mike and his wife, Aggie Luke, and by Herschel Harden. And the other one was Baghdad Saloon by George Walker. And uh, so I ended up going to England and... I was put on a waiting list at Yale. I had no idea about what Yale was. I had, you know, I applied to see if I could get in. And I was on a waiting list, and then I did get accepted, but they called me to tell me that I'd been bumped up the list. And I said, well, I'm getting, I'm going off to England, so thank you very much, uh, but no thanks, which I think they were a bit mortified by. But anyway, and I had no idea that I, what I was actually doing and saying thanks, but no thanks. But anyway, so I went over to London with Factory and I knew at that point that I was going to stay for three months and everybody else was staying for a month. And we did, the shows uh, were at the Bush Theatre in Shepherd's Bush. And... Uh, How were they received? It seems... It's you know, I have no idea have how they were received. I I remember Eric did this great poster of dancing beavers and crates of, you know, made in Can that said made in Canada or something. Because Eric used to do great posters that he would sign uh, under a pseudonym of Teddy Bedley. And um, so anyway, it's a wonderful poster. Uh, and again, you know, I mean, I I didn't. I didn't really know the big picture. I just knew I was going to London. But um, anyway, I think they were well-received, but it's not like I read the newspapers or anything, so I don't really know how they were received. I know that for me, uh, being over there at that time and being in the Bush Theatre, the Shepherd's Bush, uh, Shepherd's Bush, the theatre was 
you know, it was above a pub, so it wasn't a fancy place. Um, it was very, I felt quite at home. Um, and everybody else got ready to come back, and I knew I was going to stay on for three months. But I ended up staying on for three years, three and a half years. And one of the things that happened was that while I was there, I think I had this idea that I would convince people to just come and let me work for them, and I would work my way up doing Joe jobs. But um, Doug Robinson, who was the set designer on these two plays, he went out to Olgadis to the rehearsal hall for the English National Opera. And uh, we went and met uh, an amazing woman called Percy Harris. Her real name was Margaret Harris, who was 72 and who was running the Sadler's Wells design course. And uh, Percy was one of the trio of English designers called Motley, who had started working in the 20s with John Gilgood, and they had had an amazing career. And she had been running this school for 10 years. It had 10 students um, from all over the world, and it was embedded within the English National Opera so that as a student, you were constantly you were downstairs from the rehearsal hall you were constantly next to opera singers next to designers next to uh you know professionals working professionals and uh i i don't know why i decided as soon as i met her that i had to be there but i just knew i just knew so anyway um we had conversations i went back to wherever I was living. Uh, everybody else went back to Canada. I stayed behind, got a job working as a props stagehand at the Duchess Theatre in the West End, and uh, spent a year being in London, working there while I worked on my application to get to the Sadler's Wells. And I went to see Percy and showed her my work. And I was interviewed and they decided to accept me. I had no idea how to put a portfolio together. I didn't know anything. I think what I had was this uh, incredible determination and enthusiasm and a willingness to try to teach myself because I had up until that point pretty much just figured it out on my own. And uh, so they accepted me and um, and I was able to show them, I remember, this is so funny in a way, uh, I was being interviewed by Percy and Hayden Griffin, who was running the school with her. Hayden, you know, was designing at the Royal Court and at the National and at, you know, I mean, these were like all the people I aspired to be able to be working with. And, um, I showed him a bunch of stuff I'd done in Toronto at Factory, pictures of stuff from Factory, pictures of stuff from Toronto Free Theatre. And they were all things that I'd, you know, done on $25 budgets and made out of garbage. And uh, he looked at them at one point and he said, so it's like the Royal Court, because I was explaining that, you know, we were just doing work by Canadian writers. And Hayden said, so it's like the Royal Court. And all I could think of was oh no, it's not, no, like the Royal Court is really like Mecca. Anyway, they did accept me. And I think part of it was looking at the photographs of all of those shows from DuPont Street. And I stayed 
I kept working at the Duchess Theatre, and that was how I sort of put my way, paid my way through. And uh, the the course was only a one-year course, and it was fabulous. I loved it. It was incredibly uh, intense. There were 12 students that year, which was the most Percy had ever taken, and she said she just couldn't make up her mind. And what I loved was that the students, six of them were British, I'm still in touch with a number of them. Six of them were from other countries. And out of the six from other countries, there was myself. There was a German scenic artist. There was someone who'd been assisting at the Sydney Opera House. There was somebody who had been assisting at the English National Opera. There was somebody who was a Japanese lighting designer. And uh, who, oh, and then there was someone who was a designer from Santiago, from South America. So uh, being in that school for that year was such an extraordinary learning opportunity. We went to dress rehearsals at Covent Garden and the ENO, and we, I mean, we saw everything. Percy's phone book was a who's who of British theater. Uh, I mean, that year that I was a student, uh, she got given an order of the British Empire by the Queen, and so we had a reception for her afterwards at her apartment. And I remember opening the door to John Gilgood, to Peggy Ashcroft, to um, Alec Guinness, you know, like all these people who I was so in awe of. And I just kept thinking, I'm like this little person from Burlington. How did I get here? And I just, at that point, I I was 21, I think, so... I was still really kind of stunned, I think, to find myself there. And then I stayed on, after the course was over, I stayed on for a bit longer and uh, kept working. And then Eric Steiner got in touch with me and asked me to come back to do a show with him at the Tarragon called One Night Stand that Carol Bolt had written and was going to be with uh, Brent Carver and Chappelle Jaffe. And... um, I uh, came back, and when I left England, I had a job waiting for me as an assistant at Chichester, but I said, I'm going back to Canada, and I'll be back in September, maybe, but I didn't go back for 17 years. I came back, did this show with Eric, and everything sort of took another turn, I guess, after that. Was it hard to leave England, and did you feel like, I mean, you thought you were going to come back the UK but what kept you in Canada was it was it your friends and family there or was it the work or it was it was very interesting because I loved London I didn't have a lot of self-confidence uh I was totally intimidated by the people I would have to try to compete against to get work and also the longer I was there after a period of time I just Each year I would have to go to the home office and get my passport and visa stuff sorted out. And I I had this feeling that one day they would just come and throw me out. And so that was part of it. Um, The other part, I think, was that I, I realized I wasn't English. That's all there was to it. And when I came back to Canada initially, I really, I left my apartment full of stuff, like my flatmate who I'm still very good friends with was awfully good and you know I kind of said I'll be back in a few months and that just never happened and she still talks to me Um, but uh, when I came back to Canada Eric I came back because Eric asked me and I loved working with him and we did that and then from 
doing that show at the Tarragon, I met Bjarni Christensen, who was the lighting designer on that show. And Bjarni was the first tech director at Blythe, sort of production manager person. So when we worked on that show together at Tarragon, he said, well, you should come to Blythe this summer. And uh, so I did. And I think things just kept unfolding where I kept getting more projects. And um, that... I think I think I just kept getting more work and until I went to New York in the early 80s that was uh that kind of uh this isn't very coherent uh just you know opportunities arose and I just took advantage of them I was torn for years about whether I'd made the right decision but at a certain point I knew that the best thing the worst thing about working in Canada was that you could work really hard and nobody cared the best thing about working at Canada was that you could work really hard and nobody cared so there's a kind of a freedom to do whatever you wanted to do and to be kind of reckless about it whereas I think I did feel that in London uh, it was a very established theater culture and uh, you had to kind of find your way into that whereas Canada to me at that point was still a bit of an open frontier and because I didn't have a lot of self-confidence I could make mistakes and fail and not be in a place where I felt that I would be really damaged by it and I think that part where you you have the you have you feel safe bumbling around and knocking into things and figuring it out uh, if I had a different temperament, I perhaps might have felt that way in London, but I didn't. Um, when you arrived in Blythe, what was there? I mean, you had the Blythe Festival Theatre, which was the town hall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there was no administrative building. The shop wasn't there, right? No, so no. what was the atmosphere like, first of all? Well, for me, okay, so I'd been living in London, England for three and a half years, the center of the universe. Uh, I remember coming with Bjarni, and Bjarni wasn't even going to be working there that year. Uh, and I remember him dropping me on the main street and I looked up the street and I looked down the street and you can kind of, as you know, almost see out of town if you're standing in front of the theater. And all I could think of was what am I doing here? How did this happen? And I really, um, I thought I was on the edge of the universe Um, but I'd signed on to do, I think I was doing two and a half shows. Like I was doing sets and costumes for two and then costumes for one other show. So I'd signed on to be there for a hunk of time. And all I kept thinking was, I can't believe I'm in this place in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Like we painted scenery outside and flies got into the paint and, you know, there was no wardrobe. Uh, the, that year there was a room in the, uh, above the town clerk's office that we got that we could turn into a wardrobe. And it had been a room that had not been open since the end of the second world war. And 
it was amazing. I opened it up. There was a calendar with King George on the wall. There was a cup of tea sitting on the windowsill. There was a jar of 1940s peanut butter. Uh, there was a wood stove. The curtains, when you touch them, they crumbled. And there were all these drawers, which are still in Blythe in the workshops, that are painted. They were storage drawers that have names of spices and things on each one. Um and they were uh, in a bank along the wall, and in all of those drawers were patterns for the bandages that the women used to make to send over for the Red Cross. And uh, I found a little nest of dead mice. It's just the skeletons. Like it was, it was a total time capsule. And so what did I do? I spent three days scrubbing it down, which I kick myself now. I didn't take pictures. I just kept thinking, well, I'm going to turn this into the wardrobe. So, you know, we had a little wardrobe space. Um, we, uh, I think, I can't remember, I guess they built sets in the hall basement. Um, you know, it's a bit of a blur too. People were living, there weren't a lot of places to live. So people were living in the most extraordinary environments. I mean, there were people living in the train station, which is now a bed and breakfast, but then was basically abandoned. There were people living in abandoned farmhouses outside of town. I was living with Anne Chislett and James Roy in a wonderful stone farmhouse with no heat or plumbing or electricity. Uh, you know, so the infrastructure that exists around Blythe now, basically none of that existed at all. But by the time I had to go back to the city of Toronto, uh, later on in August, I, I actually, actually didn't want to leave because over the course of the summer, part of me was thinking, oh, some of these plays, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm used to like watching David Hare and stuff. Um, but what I found so extraordinary there was that the audience l loved it. And I kept thinking, you know, if you can fill a theater every night with people who are really having a good time, that's, that's important. It's, you know, it may not be what I think of, what I thought of at that time as the most important, significant theater writing in the world. Uh, it was, but it was very significant in the sense that it was about those people and, their world and they related to it. And I found that really moving somehow. I'll see you at last. That was set designer Sean Kerman speaking to me from her home in Toronto. Thank you, Sean. Next time we get into her time at Stratford and her design philosophy, you won't want to miss it. The music gift for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the 1990s called See You by the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. That's the and the year 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA and on facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests to the title block at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you are overcome by paint vapors because someone forgot to dig the old squirrel's nest out of a fume hood. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on The Title Block. Title Block.